Well, as you probably know, we are in the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany simply means a celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Um, but Gentiles, at the time of that writing, didn't have so much of an ethnic overtone as it had an overtone of all the others who weren't Jewish. Uh, so it, uh, it's that God had been revealing himself to this one special group of people, Israel, and he'd been doing it for a very special reason, and that is that they would be his salt and his light on the earth, that they would be something like his cosmic first responders, and that they would be going to the places of pain and struggle and hurt and agony in the world on his behalf. Well, you you know, go forward now several thousand years, and God, that same God, is now revealing himself for the same purpose to everyone. And so the church, for a couple thousand years, has celebrated this. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to talk for a bit about what are the aims of God in the epiphany? What's he up to? Um, and then I want to talk about how can we participate in revealing Jesus to others in healthy ways. So first, what's happening in the epiphany? Well, our reading in Kings this morning about Naaman, there's so much that could be said in that story, but for our purposes today, let's at least say that it points out to us that one of the things that God's doing in the Epiphany is healing the worst of all cases. There would have been nothing worse than leprosy at the time that this story was told. And so I think what this story is meant to point out to us as it's read in Epiphany is that you think of the person in your life who's the toughest case. Maybe think of the person who's ostracized by your family or who, do, who for whatever reason, does not fit uh, easily or comfortably in social settings. And this story reminds us that no one's too far from God, that in the epiphany, one of the affects of what happens when Christ is made manifest to the others no matter how far someone might be, no matter how other they might be, no one is too far from God. And so this story has in it this prophet, Elisha, and he represents to us in the season of Epiphany, in this story is like an icon of a representation of God, of someone like us. And I want you to just stop and think for a minute about Elisha's confidence. How did he obtain it? How did he know what to tell Naaman? And I think it suggests to us as we think about our own role in participating in the epiphany is that it comes out of our own sort of quiet confidence with God. And I just need to say, participating in ministry, kind of knowing what to say, when to say it, you know, like this is one of the things when we used to do alpha groups, we were always so careful to create environments that were emotionally and intellectually and relationally honest and that we were letting people have space and place. And so we had to always really discern, is this a time to say something? Like if I, if I say something to this person, if I ask them to go to coffee after the group, they had this question about the Bible, will it be off-putting or will it be helpful? Will I be building a social bridge or will I be bearing, uh, building a social barrier? And I just have to tell you, you know how you learn that? Trial and error. You get in the game. 
There are some things about cooperating with the Holy Spirit. There are some things about being in ministry that you can't learn from a textbook. And you can't even learn by praying about it. You really only learn by trying, by getting out there and trying to hear God and, and seeing the affect. And so, of course, the prophet Elisha had, had this sort of in the supreme. And so he knew exactly what he was doing when he told him to go wash himself seven times. Naaman, of course, loses his temper, being offended by the treatment. But this is important. His servants say to him, so, so I just wanted to catch this. The prophet Elijah, that's sort of like saying, I don't know, Babe Ruth or Billy Graham or something. The prophet Elijah speaks to him and he's ticked off. His servants speak to him. And they say to him, Naaman, if the prophet had asked you to do something hard and heroic, knowing that Naaman had lived a very hard and heroic life, wouldn't you have done it? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, meaning of course you would have. And so they say, well, then why not do the simple wash and be clean? And so he does it. He goes, he immerses himself seven times. His skin is healed like that of a little boy, and he's as good as new. And this tells us what God's up to in the epiphany in this sense, that God is up to regeneration. And while the phrase born again might strike you as sort of 80s, like an 80s band, or if you're older, you know, the word born again might strike you as sort of a Jesus movement term, you know, uh, you know, it might strike you more like a 70s band. The idea behind it, that human beings outside of God are experiencing something like a death, such that they need to be regenerated, that a different kind of life needs to be generated within them, that they need to be something like born again, that idea still fits. It's as true today as it was in the 70s when it was a buzzword. And then it got thrown out by culture. I get it. I don't blame the culture for throwing it out. Throw out the words if you want, but the notion of being regenerated, of being reconciled to God, of something being restored in humanity that's been marred, that is something that this reading in the context of Epiphany tells us this is what God's up to. This is one of the aims of God in the Epiphany, that those people in our society with no power those people have no resources for self-healing. Naaman knew he couldn't heal himself. So now let Naaman's skin uh, alert you to your own or your friends or family's or neighbor's inner brokenness and let his hopelessness to heal his skin. There was no salve. There was no medication, no vaccine, no doctor to see. He was absolutely hopeless and being increasingly ostracized as this skin condition persisted and spread. Those without any power for self-healing, if they'll just trust the power of God and obey his word, whatever it is, in this case it was go dip yourself seven times. If they'll obey his word, then they can be healed. And what I want you to hear in terms of your own participation in the epiphany, our participation in helping this manifestation of the Gentiles spread, is that look who it is that gets through to Naaman, his lowly, in the text, unnamed servants. That's who finally gets to him. Not the great prophet. He gets ticked off at the great prophet. But his servants, who remain completely anonymous in the text, say to him, hey, what about? They take a risk. They're not a great prophet. 
They might not have the same confidence that Naaman had, that they knew exactly what to say, but they just took a risk and just said, hey, Naaman, if they'd asked you something hard, you would have done it. How about this? And then I think the last thing to say about what this passage teaches us about the epiphany is, I mean, it shows us God's aim in reaching the most broken. It shows us our place in it as servants, but it shows us something that I think we need to hang on to in the midst of our culture, and that is to receive the epiphany. One must believe that God's way is better than ours. He had to dip himself seven times. It seemed really stupid. We have cleaner rivers than this. You know, like I grew up here, you know, in Santa Ana, in the Santa Ana Riverbed. Uh, it's rocks and dust. And then I moved from here to a little town on the banks of the Ohio River. And I thought, my God, that is a river. <laughs> I, had, I had seen riverbeds my whole life, but I'd never seen an actual river. And, and that's something like Nathan's saying here, I, you know, we have rivers in Israel that are cleaner than this. Why dip myself seven times in this? So Jesus says, Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. He says, if someone demands of you your shirt, give them your coat too. They need it. If someone compels you to go a mile, go two miles. So what do you, about, what do you think about it? Is turning the other cheek a better way of doing life than your anger? Is having a servant heart towards people better than being stingy or greedy? See, the way in is also the way on. One must believe to get in, and the way one gets on is to believe that the life that Jesus describes in the kingdom is better than the life that we know, that there's a life available to us under the rule and reign of God that's superior to anything we've known. And that's why at the end of all those sayings, Jesus sort of tops it all off by saying, anyone who hears these words of mine but does not act upon them as if they're true and a better way of life is like somebody who builds their life on the sand. But anyone who hears these words of mine and their true interaction with them is that this is a superior way of living and are therefore willing to turn the other cheek or dip themselves seven times will find a life that they could have never even dreamed of. But one has to first come to the place where one sees that what God thinks is actually better than what we think. Well, the psalmist alerts us to another kind of person who gets in on the epiphany where he says, and this is sort of like, an inti- this is sort of like a Jewish insider who had made such a mess of his life that he was kind of an outsider. So the psalmist says, you got me out of this mess that I'd made of my life. I yelled for help and you put me together. You pulled me out of the grave and gave me another chance at life when I was down and out. And I think what this psalm alerts us to this morning, again, in the context of epiphany, is the humility there is in the epiphany, the stooping down of God in the epiphany, the humility of God, which leads then to this psalmist to praise him for the epiphany, because in this stooping is a deliverance. In this bending down is a lifting up. Uh, in this coming towards us is a rescue, a healing, a freedom that we wouldn't have got had God not revealed himself to us, all the others. 
And then lastly, of course, the the reading in Mark, our gospel reading this morning, brings us back again to the notion of leprosy. And there's a reason that these readings uh, come in this season of Epiphany. Because leprosy is meant to make your mind go like this. Revolting. Disgusting. And maybe the best way for our generation to think of it is think of the early reaction to AIDS. Just, if you can... Think back 20 years, the Reagan administration, I'm not picking on Ronald Reagan, but just to get your brain going. Think back to those years and the churches and society's kind of first reaction to AIDS. Disgusted, revolting, blah, blah, blah. But our text says, Jesus deeply moved with pity Some texts say reached out his hand. Other texts say that Jesus put out his hand. But whatever, you see in here the clearest kind of physical embodiment of the epiphany. Outreach. Jesus reached out his hand. Jesus deeply moved from within, reached out his hand, and answered the man's prayer by saying, I want to heal you. Yeah, yeah, I know you've slept with people your whole life who aren't your spouse, or yeah, 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 I know you got addiction issues, or yeah, 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 I know you're a gossip. Whatever. But when that kind of person says, Lord, if you will, will, I know that you can heal me, Jesus says, I want to. Be clean. And right then the leprosy was gone and the man's skin was made smooth and healthy. And what this shows us about the epiphany is that all people need someone to reach out to them. And what we see here in Jesus and in this healing is his compassion. And we see, and I don't have time to talk about this, but I just want to point it out to you, we see the incredible role in the embrace of a community. Because this leper just didn't need Skin that wasn't pocked or marked or maybe it had gone to the point of even bleeding or pussing. He just didn't need that to go away. He had not had a place to belong his whole life. And so when Jesus reaches out, that's stunning. Because lepers, when they were, you know, if a leper were walking, if this is a little bit difficult, but picture ancient Israel... But it kind of looks like the crowded cities of New York, the crowded sidewalks of New York City. Well, a leper would have had to like ring a little bell or, or say a word or something to alert people, don't get near me. And if a leper didn't see someone else, people would often throw stones at the leper to alert the leper that I'm here, don't get too close to me. This is the way this man would have lived his whole life. And we see that one of the aspects of the epiphany, when one receives it, is that one is included into this community. All right, well, I want to take my last couple of minutes this morning to talk about, okay, how do we get involved in this? How do we get involved in this reach out of Jesus? Now, for two years, I've said to you that in every regard, but especially regarding outreach or especially regarding doing religious things, that Holy Trinity Church, as far as I can have control, and Lord knows how much that is, but as far as I can have control, this is a guilt-free, manipulation-free zone. 
that we are never going to guilt each other into doing things, and we're never going to manipulate each other into doing things. But it's not enough just to say that. And it's not enough to just create even a safe place where all of us can heal from painful hurts of the past in church. I mean, I've experienced it from both sides of the desk. I've been a manipulator, and I've manipulated. I've done whatever it takes, because we had to have 40 Sunday school teachers. And I've been willing to do almost whatever it took to get those 40 40 Sunday school teachers or whatever. I'm sure I participated knowingly and unknowingly in in manipulation. But it's not enough to just say we're going to stop that. We're not going to do it to each other. We're not going to have it done to us. We have to find a positive way forward. But so I want you to know that I don't nag about it only because I don't believe in the blah, 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 that it works. Remember Enron, the infamous energy company from the early 2000s, right? Can all picture that in your mind? Remember, they brought down one of the top five historic accounting companies in the world, Arthur Anderson, Uh, Several of their executives ended up in jail. At the time, it was the largest bankruptcy ever. Uh, Shareholders, people like you who are trying to save for retirement, lost $11 billion in it. Well, remember, uh, in the early 2000s was also the time of those posters that used to be on corporate walls, you know, those motivational posters. You know, want to know what the number one poster in the halls of Enron was? Integrity. The blah, blah, blah effect just doesn't work. Look at the sides of, you know, cigarette packages. And if you smoke, I'm not down on you. I'm just saying, look at the sides of those cigarette passages, cigarette packages. Well, now you know the FDA wants to start putting images on there. They're up in the game. And just last night, I was watching the, you know, the news about Whitney Houston before I went to bed, and a commercial came on. There's this really big African-American man sitting at his kitchen table. Oh, you only see his back. Have you seen this? And he's wheezing through emphysema. And it just goes on talking, you know, about. And so, but, you know, for some people, that kind of stuff just doesn't work. So what can we do? Well, I'm going to give you three questions that I think can renew in you kind of a sense of play. Because that's what outreach should be like. You don't work a violin, you play it. And God intended outreach to be that kind of thing. You don't work this, you play it. You're gonna probably wanna write these down. These, I think, are some windows into how you might find your place in an organic and real way in the spread of the epiphany. Number one, what do you dream about? What makes your eyes brighten? What gives you a sense of energy so that when you talk, others feel your excitement? See, answering the question, what do you dream about, reveals your passion. So what do you dream about? That could be a window into how you participate in the epiphany. Number two, what do you cry about? What makes you really discontent? What, because it exists, disgusts you? What do you see in society that really disappoints you? What, when you see it, makes you think, somebody has to do something here? See, answering the question, what do you cry about, gives your ministry integrity and purity of motive. 
That's what happened to me. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you from my heart and my actual story. When Debbie and I were in high school, Debbie worked over at South Coast Plaza in what was then a really hip store called Judy's. It's like 1978 or 79. And uh, so, you know, in Judy's were all these single girls. And, and, and then, you know, this is the Jesus movement. I'm 19 years old. And so some of the guys from Calvary Chapel and these girls were, you know, like boyfriend and girlfriend. And they wanted to have what I think we used to call back then a home Bible study. So we had this home Bible study, and somehow I was elected to teach. I don't know why. I'd only been a Christian a few weeks. But it just so happens that in that Bible study were a couple of guys from the famous bands at the time, like Daniel Amos and The Way. And they, they would go out on their tours, and then they would come back. And when they came back from their tours, here's the kind of thing I heard over and over and over again for a period of, I don't know, six months or a year. Gee, all the kids in Kansas City wish there were churches like Calvary Chapel. Gee, all the kids in New Jersey wish there was churches that played this kind of music. Gee, all the kids in Cincinnati. And at some point, I heard that one too many times and something exploded in my heart that says, well, then why doesn't somebody go make some churches like that? Because, you know, Jesus was coming back any day. And kids were dying and going to hell, and it just bothered me. I literally couldn't take it. And so not more than a year or so later, Debbie and I packed up everything we had, and we moved to a city that we'd never been to in our life, Wheeling, West Virginia. Did not know one person. Had never been there. Had like 60 bucks in our pockets. Why? Why do I stand here today? Why did I start this church? Because it bugs me that people don't have a church to go to that they can relate to. It's not okay with me. I can't stand it. I, like, I literally can't stand it. I'm like a freaking addict. <laughs> it just like bugs me that, 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 this, that this exists. So here's what you gotta hear. I'm not saying you all should participate. Come on back. I'm not, I'm not saying that you all need to participate in church planting. I'm telling you that's my thing. And I'm inviting you this morning to answer your own question. What do you cry about? What bugs you that it exists? And it bugs you so much that you have to do something about it. See, there you can find a genuine place to serve in and through the church, not somebody manipulating you, not the blah, blah, blah effect of seeing integrity on the walls or notices on a cigarette carton. And then lastly, what do you sing about? See, because you need more than just a burden. If it's really real, it'll also be the kind of thing that makes you happy, that brings you great joy. See, answering the question, what do you sing about, is important because if you're gonna find something to do, you're gonna need joy because it's joy that gives you tenacity and endurance. Can I tell you that everybody in the church thinks that us church planters are like Naaman? Everybody knows that church planting is like the hardest thing in the world to do. And, and you know, or, do you know that Orange County, now its reputation is, it's the graveyard for church planters? Like this is where church planters come to die? And when you're a church planner, you feel that day in and day out, week in and week out. And so you need something to give you tenacity, something to give you endurance. And it's joy that does that. So let me just conclude by saying this. That God's up to something in the epiphany. And what he's doing is he's reaching out, even to the worst of the worst, A. And B, he's creating a people for himself who join him in that. 
And what we need is a non-manipulative, non-guilty way into that. And I'm suggesting as we pause now to meditate, what do you dream about? What do you cry about? What do you sing about?